Well, let's get into our series this week. We're starting a new series. We traveled through Mark for 16 weeks, taking a break. We're going to come back into that around Easter next year already. We're talking about next year. But today we're going to be talking about sight, Uh, serving God ourselves, the world, or seeing God ourselves, the world, and other people justly. So we're going to answer four questions about how we see God rightly, how we see uh, ourselves rightly, how we see the world, and how we see others. And so today we're focusing on God. We want to focus around and explore this idea. Is it possible, is it possible that we, by our own doing, have created beliefs and thoughts about God that are ill-informed and misguided that maybe impact our faith in our life? Is it possible that our flourishing or struggling in life might be affected by how we view God? And so that's where we want to walk in today. We want to see God rightly. And so I don't know if your household is like mine. It was or is or maybe it might be. But in my household, we have a significant issue with getting our kids to eat new kinds of food. Uh, even, even to eat food that they once liked for them to eat those things again. We have a constant fight in our house. Maybe you guys have that too. My one-year-old has been, she's been really good at this. She's been really good about eating things in front of her up to her first birthday party, all right? Prior to her first birthday party, sweet potatoes, peas, whatever you put in front of her, content, happy, eating those things. But I remember the moment that my life changed because her life changed. At her birthday party, she had cake for the first time, and it blew her mind. Like, how wouldn't it? I mean, cake is delicious. Carrot cake is the most delicious, just so you guys know. In that moment, I watched her face go from content to, oh my word, like what is this delectable Danish pastry thing? And in that, from that moment on, her expectation of food has changed. It doesn't matter if we have the same thing on our plate, my daughter believes that we're holding out on her, that there is something better on your plate than what's on mine, because she's believed that we're holding out, that we've... We've got the good stuff, and she doesn't. She has an expectation in food that there's something better out there. Now, my other daughter, Camille, she's different. Uh, She has just created thoughts in her head that she's never going to like new food. I don't know if you have a kid like this. Like, she just has created this thought, hey, why don't you you try this? No, I don't want to. Why? Oh, I don't like it. Well, how do you know? Have you had it before? No, I I haven't had it before. Then how do you know that you're not going to like it? This is, that's my conversation at lunchtimes. It doesn't matter what it is, that's the conversation. She has created a belief in her head that it doesn't matter what it tastes like, how good or bad it's going to be, it's horrible. She has this preconceived notion, and it's never going to allow her to taste and see food and enjoy it, appreciate it, or, or, or get new things and, 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 and really like them. And so... Here's where I'm going with this. Could it be possible, could it be possible that we have created a concept in the area of belief and faith in how we see God that boxes God into what's comfortable and familiar for us, much like my daughter has done, Camille, with new food? That maybe we've just created a belief that robs us from seeing God more fully, more deeply, more intimately, bigger than what we could imagine. Maybe, just maybe, today, we could be like Ellie. 
we could be like Ellie, that you might consider that there are things out there that are outside of your knowledge that could change the way you think forever. That there might be a belief or a thought about God that might rock your world and change your perspective, and in doing so, change your life forever. Because how we answer the question, who is God, has significant value in our lives. How you answer that question will dictate the course of one's relationship with that God. What you believe in your heart God to be like will become the foundation of your faith and life in God. It's true. It's just true. And so we ought to put lots of weight on considering who God is. We should consider what we believe because is there really any more important idea in all of the world than what we do with the term God? And for many of us, we have buried our aspects and thought about God's thoughts about God's in cultural lenses and cultural contexts. We buried them in historical um, kind of historical history. No, that's, that would be the same thing, Steve. Uh, we bury them in family heritage. They're shaped by people that we trust. That thought is shaped by people that we trust. It's expanded on what we he- by by what we hear and what we listen to. So we need to put some critical time into thinking about this. A.W. Tozer, who's a man more brilliant than me, which is not saying a whole lot. A.W. Tozer, who's often over my head, he writes this, and I think this is so true. He said, a right concept of God is basic not only to systematic theology, thoughts about God, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple, or a foundation is to a house. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Tozer goes on to to say in his book called The Knowledge Knowledge of the Holy that one of the most common sins that you and I commit is the sin called idolatry, not adultery, idolatry, and we replace the image of the true God for the images of God that we want in our lives, that we create. And if we create that God, don't, doesn't it not make sense that that God begins to take on our passions, our ideas, our thoughts, and our beliefs? And so it's very good for us to consider rightly how to, to see God. And so let's do some important work today. Let's challenge who we see when we see God. Let's ask some good questions. Uh, Maybe we've just gone into places that we just need to get out of. And so uh, I have uh, thought about this a lot, obviously. Uh, Thought that we could maybe go through a bunch of attributes, characteristics of God, and maybe that would speak to you. But what what I really feel like is more fruitful is for us to kind of let some ideas that we falsely believe about God to grind up against us. And so I want to speak towards some things that we begin to believe, signs that maybe we have put our definition of God wrongly, that we have made a wrong definition of God. And this isn't here to challenge you. It's not here to say that you don't have faith. It's not here to to say you should question your whole faith. It's to say maybe you have areas of blind spots in your life that you're not seeing God correctly. I'm not challenging your faith. I'm challenging perspective. And so six things that we're going to walk through today that are false ideas in the area of God. So the first one is this, is, is that you're motivated by shame instead of love. 
You're motivated by shame instead of love. Listen, feelings of shame and condemnation are often evidence that you believe God's opinion about you is determined by your pursuit or your obedience in him. So listen, three things I want to make clear in that. Number first, number one, first, is that God never uses the tools of shame and condemnation to move his people. Those thoughts are not of him. That's somewhere else. God doesn't use those things to move you. Secondly, you get no say in how God feels about you. Like, can I just say that to you? You get no say in how God feels about you. The word says that God is love. And his perfect love is displayed to you by his life, his death, and his resurrection, that he went that far to bring you back, that he served you that deeply. He has determined your value to be that much, that great. And he's spoken to it, and now he's acted upon it on the cross. Thirdly, is we love because he first loved us. Your life is always meant to be responsive to the revelation of God's love for you, not to live and be motivated by the fear of God's anger for you, but rather motivated by a perfect love that Scripture says cast out all fear. So that's the first kind of false idea. The second is this, is that you're scared of being outside of God's will instead of trusting that he's guiding you. You're scared of being outside of God's will instead of trusting that he's guiding you. God's will, I think we make this into a bigger deal than it is. God's will isn't some divine mystery, this giant perplexing puzzle that you need to somehow figure out in your life or risk the consequences of never being in God's will and being outside of what he wants. That's not what the will of God is. Being over-worried about that is not where God would want us because it betrays a trust that we should have in the Lord that he has a good plan for us according to his purposes, that he is the one authority in our lives, that he is ultimately the one that guides our life. To get caught up in worrying about what we're supposed to be doing or what we're missing, we miss opportunities in front of us in the now to see what God is saying to you. Listen, we ourselves far too often are motivated by things that have happened in the past and we live towards things that are going to happen in the future. Very rarely, you and I, we, do we live in the moment. Do you want the great things about kids? Is kids just don't buy any of that. They just live in the moment. All they're concerned about in their gleeful happiness and joy is just the moment. We've lost our innocence in that somewhere along the way. Listen, God meets you in the moment. He, he says, do not worry about tomorrow, for today has its own worries. His grace is there for you in the moment. His love for you is in the moment. The, those are the moments when you are fully present where you're at, is where God finds you. He's changing you there, not in some distant version of yourself, but in the you right there. So God's will is about you trusting that he's taking care of you and walking towards him. Number three is this, is you feel the need to defend the gospel instead of revealing the gospel. There's nothing wrong with having healthy conversations about faith. I love having conversations about faith. 
But if you feel the need to defend the faith at all costs, then you've misunderstood Jesus somewhere along the way. Because Jesus didn't live, he didn't die, and he wasn't raised again to defend a a set of ideas or beliefs or principles. He wasn't dying to defend anything. He didn't defend the gospel. He revealed the gospel. Jesus had one mandate in his life, is to show the perfect love and the will of the Father. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, for I am in him and he is in me. God doesn't need you to defend it, but he loves for you to reveal it. To be honest, the best defense of the gospel is for the sons and daughters of Christ, those in faith, to live as expression of love in every aspect of our lives. You've heard the saying that says the best defense is a good offense. That's true of our faith. If we are out there living the gospel, loving, caring, balancing grace and truth in people's lives, there's no need. We have nothing to be on our heels about. We don't have to be defensive. We've got everything that we already need in life. And so we don't defend the gospel. We reveal it. Our main responsibility as Christians is to love God and to love others. And number four is you equate hardship with holiness. And this can be hard because struggle is definitely a part of the Christian experience. But we're not masochist. Like we're not just looking to take on pain. We tend to elevate pain and suffering with holiness of a godly life. And if we do that, we have a, a wrong understanding of God's heart. You know, in Mark, we talked a lot about taking up your cross and following Jesus. Servanthood. Uh, Mark 11 specifically talked about that. Look, in following Jesus, sacrifice, suffering is just going to be your experience. But listen, it's not the point. It's not the point. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was not the point. The resurrection was the destination. And in Hebrews, it says that he did all of these things for the joy that was set before him in in enduring the cross. God knew the joy that was on the other side of suffering. He didn't suffer because he was a masochist. He suffered because he knew that there was something immensely better. And so when we talk about taking up your cross, it's not a celebration of suffering in Jesus, but an invitation to live by a resurrected Savior. to to live in his life, that there's nothing else that you need on this earth. There's nothing else that this world could give you that you don't already have in Jesus. And so you can deny yourself and sacrifice and serve others because you got it all through the power and love what Jesus did on the cross in his resurrection. We get to do that. You're no longer defined by sin. You're redefined by God's love for you. Number five is that you're trying harder instead of being transformed. You're trying harder instead of being transformed. Listen, Jesus didn't live, die, and live again so you could work harder at this. That would be meaningless for him to have taken all that suffering and pain and, and on the cross. It would be, his, his death would be meaningless. He didn't do all those things so you could try harder. Your feelings of spiritual inadequacy are, are often evidence that you have a misunderstanding of God's perfect love for you. Listen, Jesus lived for 33 years. We know his ministry, it was a flashback. Three years, from 30 to 33, 
the stories that we talked about in Mark, they're in that three years. Jesus was baptized at 30. He hadn't done anything yet. But on his baptism, the father parts the clouds and says, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Jesus had done nothing. What had he had done? What, 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 he had, what has he done that, that God would be well pleased? He was well pleased in him. And the truth is, is God's got a great pleasure for you. And if you understand that God is well pleased in you, he's not okay with you staying where you are, but he loves you absolutely just where you are. If you understand that God's had great pleasure for you and moves us towards obedience and faith and sacrifice because we are well pleased in him. It's not about trying harder. It's about being pleased and delighted in the Father for what he's done for you. And then the last one is this, is that you live to get what you want instead of what God wants. For some of us, we live our lives with these lofty thoughts about God, that he, we have great revelation or, or reverence for God, but we lack transformation and, and deep abiding joy in him. And that comes from a reality where we have God on a throne. Yes, we have great thoughts about him, but he's not on a throne that's higher than us. That God is in my life, but ultimately the one that sits on the highest throne that makes all the calls and the shots is me. That we have this view that God is there to serve me. That he is the one that makes my plans go forward. He's the one that's going to be helpful in my conquest. He's going to be all about my endeavors in life. That he's going to make the things impossible for me possible, which means that he's going to give me satisfaction and comfort in my life based upon my own definition and my own plan in my own life that he's going to provide for me in my own personal kingdoms. But listen, we hear that and we know that that sounds stupid. God doesn't take a backseat to anybody. He's not Siri. He's not your personal assistant. He's not our worldly servant. The creator of all things should never be placed by a created being in a position where they get to call the shots and not the creator itself. Rather, we are to align ourselves up to his life and surrender and revere God who is categorically greater than anything else. Categorically, period, exclamation part, greater than anything else in our lives. In 1 Peter, Peter writes these words. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Get rid of that sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh. Listen, this is the part. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That we are redefined by the love of Christ. That we are no longer subject to our own human passions. But rather by the desires and the will of God. And so we, listen guys. We often, in, in talking about this, we, we often settle for an image or a perspective of God that is far too low. It, it's far too low. One that often resembles you and I. If we're most honest, our beliefs and our definition of God, we get in the way. We, we like to, to make him look like us. And so look, for millennia, people have been pondering this question, who is God? 
great discussions, great arguments, I'm sure, along the way. And you would think by now that we would have this really formatted, well-defined, everything neatly in a box definition of God that we could hand out and say, there, there you go. Now go live your life. But we don't. We don't. I mean, we know who God is. We know his character. We know his attributes. We know his story. But yet there are so many things that are unknown to us. Like we know that our God is perfect. He's holy. He's right. He's just. But he's also personable, loving, compassionate. And he never is not loving when he's just. And he's never not just when he's loving. And so there are some things that are just well beyond our human ability to understand things. And so Here's the thought. Would you really want to serve a God that was easily definable? You could put him in a box and say, that's who my God is 100% of the time. Or would you rather serve a God who's so high and mighty and above you and glorious and grand that you can't even comprehend him? That's the God that I serve. That his ways and his will are not always known to me and his power is often misunderstood in my life. He's above us. But nevertheless, we have to do work to have an accurate idea of where we're going and who we're serving and how that God interacts with us. I would say overwhelmingly that we have a low view of God and it would be wise for you just to believe that you yourself has a low view of God in your life. You have a lower view of God than you should because God is infinitely higher than what your brain could ever imagine. I mean, if we look at Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This term Alpha, it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The term Omega, it's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. God is beginning and end and everything in between. He's A to Z, and he was and is and will always be. God never came into being. He's always existed. Get your head around that. He will never end, and everything is contained in him. No beginning, no end, just there. And so it's hard for us to fathom that. No ending, no end, no beginning, and he brought all of it into being. You can't have a low view of God and believe that. And so we have a being that existed always. But what do we know about his character? What do we know about his personality? What do we know about his temperament? And, and we could sit here for eons, and we could write up hundreds of lists of attributes and characters of God and his story. We could talk about a God who is, is all-knowing, he's all-seeing, he's all-powerful, who's holy, just, and perfect. He's outside of time and space. He's perfect in will and perfect in compassion and perfect in love. And all of those things would be rich and good and meaningful for our lives. Yes, they would. But wouldn't it be nice if there was something tangible that would take the complex and make it understandable? That we might even be able to experience who God is ourselves. And the good news is that we do. Because in Jesus Christ, we can know God fully. Jesus is, is the full revelation of God in flesh. Look at Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians, Paul says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's Jesus. Jesus is literally God with flesh on. He's God with skin on. And he is in perfect unity and union with God so that in everything that he says, does, and is, he reflects the nature and the character of God. And so if we want to know who God is, we get to experience him through the Son, Christ. Christ is God on earth walking amongst his broken people to show us how, to know why, so that we could understand. I love S.D. Gordon. He's an author. He writes this. He says, Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that humanity could understand. I like that phrase. Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that humanity could understand. He's tactile. He's tangible. He's something that we can read about and know. And so what does Jesus tell me about God? What does Jesus tell me about God? Well, Westminster would say this. They They would say this. It teaches me that God loves me perfectly. He cares for me. He's in control of the universe. He, he provides atonement for sin. He's king over all the universe. He will deal with the problem of sin in the world. He will bring me home to heaven. God is good. God is just. God is merciful. He's holy. He's true, and he's unchangeable. Through Christ, I know God. And so if we just took that, we put it in a list, it would look like this. That's a good list. God loves me perfectly. God cares for me. God is in control. God has provided atonement for my sin. God is king over all things. God will deal with the sin in the world. God will bring those in faith through it. He's good, merciful, holy, true, unchangeable. God is Christ. And those things are noble and right and good, and they should be in our brains and our hearts. But if we just make lists like this, and we don't challenge our own convictions and our own definitions ourselves, then this is meaningless. Because I can sit here day in and day out and teach to you on stage what the Word of God says, but if you're not engaging with it yourself, the definition of God will never be as clear to you. These are just lists that I can talk about until I'm blue in the face, but if it doesn't enter in your heart, if you don't experience these things, that's all they'll be. If we're not pursuing Christ, God in flesh, we're just going to see list. And so I just want to end our time today with giving you one thought, one thought and one challenge as we go forward. One thought. And so here's the thought. God is better than you think. God is better than you think. It's not rocket science. I know that sounds simplistic. God is better than you think. Like he's better at love than you think he is. He's better at grace than you think he is. He's better at forgiveness than you think. 
He's better at judgment than you think. He's better at justice than you think. He's better at mercy. He's better at ruling. He's better at planning. He's better at sacrifice. He's better at wisdom. He's better than anything that you could imagine in your head. He's just better. He's better than your definition of him. He's better than my definition of him. He's better than your earthly father. He's better than your circumstances. He's better than your time. He's better than everything. He's better than your habit. He's better than your addiction. He's better. And not only is he better than you can imagine, he's closer than you could even know. That's the great thing about Christ. We don't serve a God that's some distant ruler in the cosmos, but a very near God who came so near that he lost his life for you. So near that he lost his life for you. And so here's my challenge for us. In Jesus, we can know a lot about who God is. And he's written it down for us to know in his word. Listen, I think that all of us want to talk to God, but sometimes we have this belief that I'm just not that special. That why would God talk to me? But the reality is, is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your thoughts on what, how special you are. God has a lot to say to you. He has a lot to tell you. He even wrote it down for you to see it. Do you know the number one, this is uh, the, the research, 20,000 plus surveys, the number one indicator of transformation and growth in the life of Christian. Of Christ. Do you know what that number one thing, it's not even close, Engagement with Scripture. Engagement with Scripture. But yet, we are at a time in this culture where biblical illiteracy is at its highest rate. And so, could it be possible, just possible, that some of the chaos and some of the disorder in our life might come from the fact that we're not engaged with who God says He is and what God says about you? We hear all the time that we should read our words. But we don't necessarily hear how. And look, that's on me. That's my fault. It can be overwhelmingly intimidating to read scripture. And so we're going to be launching some initiatives around here that's going to help be helpful in you understanding how to read that. If you're in here and you want to do that, all I'm going to ask is that you would consider talking to somebody who's down the road further and say, I, I, need to, I want to do this. How do I do this? And they can walk with you in that area. And so, good, look, guys, we can put lists up here until I'm blue in the face about the attributes of God. They're great, they're many, they're numerous, they're amazing. But until we're willing to do the work ourselves, it will not have the kind of outcome that you want it to be, have in your life. And so take this with you. He is better than what you could ever imagine. He's better than you think he is and do the work. Feed yourself. It should not be your only place to get fed is here. Feed ourselves. And so as we worship our king, as we come into the end of our time here, I just want to reflect on that. I want you in this song to reflect on the, the enormity of our God, that he is above everything that you could imagine and ask him that he might move in your heart, that you might delight in getting to know him more.
in his word. So let's stand. If you're in here today and you need some prayer, we're going to invite our prayer team to come forward. Uh, We'd love to pray for you, but let's sing together.